You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everyone and welcome to another edition of Ask Strong Towns. I see some folks are still trickling in, but I'll go ahead and give the intro. I think a lot of you all are pretty old hat at this by now. Um, I'm Kia. If you haven't met me before, I'm the person who sends you all your emails every single week pretty much. And this is the man himself, Chuck Marone. How are you doing? Today, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm the guy who used to send emails, but wasn't very good at it. So now <laughs> we have competent people doing that. Uh, that's a little modest, but okay. Um, this is Ask Strong Towns. And the way this works, if you have never done one before, is pretty simple. We've got a little list of questions that have been pre-submitted by other members, but we also want to hear questions live from you. There's a little button at the bottom of the screen that says Q&A. That's the one you want to hit if you have a question at any point during the webcast. You can submit one kind of now or in 30 minutes, whatever you want to do. Um, my only recommendation is don't use that chat feature because I am not looking there for your questions. That's for you to talk about how great both of us look today, <laughs> um, what are what's on your mind. If we have a resource or a link to share with you, we're going to put it in there. But we're not looking for our questions there. After we get through as many as we can in the next 45 minutes, an hour, we're going to strip the audio off of this and download it into a podcast for your future listening pleasure. So you will have have another chance to uh, listen to this and also view the live video. If we talk a little bit fast, no worries. It is preserved for the ages. So I'm ready to get started if you are. Let's go for it. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. Let's rock and roll. Okay. I got one from Jacob Sheridan. Strong Towns regularly advocates for street trees. The arguments may make sense, but I have yet to see my biggest concern about street trees addressed, which is that tree roots can wreak havoc on water and wastewater lines, creating huge repair costs. Are there strategies to plant new street trees while protecting the underground utility infrastructure? This is actually one that gets raised a lot in my town of St. Louis, where we got clay pipes, we got all kinds of things that are aging and that are very, very penetrable. So I thought I would ask my buddy, the engineer, <laughs> Chuck. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, I get this a lot too. And, you know, as an, as an engineer, I ran into this in many places. We would uh, photograph and the technology back in the 90s when I looked at these was not as good as it is now. Uh, but I'll bas- they put like a camera through the sewer pipe and you can watch the camera go through and you can see the tree roots coming in and yeah, they, they do a lot of damage. I mean, if you're a tree root, you're looking for water and uh, a sewer line, you know, you might not, uh, we might not drink it, but a tree will find that very tasty. Mm. So yeah, there's kind of a natural kind of uh, mechanism there that happens. Uh, Here's the, here's the interesting observation that I have. I don't have a perfect answer for this. I live in an old house. We get the tree roots cleaned out of our our sewer pipe, you know, every few years. We did before we moved in. I'm paying it done this summer. Um, it's one of those, it's like a maintenance thing. Uh, I, I go around to cities that are gorgeous and have street trees that function really well. And the trees provide a, a valuable, valuable purpose, uh, both in 
creating a comfortable environment uh, for kind of dampening that hardscape for, you know, framing the street. In terms of the design of the public space, the trees are really important. You go to these places and I know they got old pipe underneath and somehow it magically works. I believe it works because there's some dedication to maintaining it all. There's some actual like acknowledgement that this is an ongoing maintenance issue that we're going to have to deal with. And the cost and the effort and the expense and the attention we're going to pay to that is worth the other side of this equation. The places that I see that obsess the other way, they're like, we got this pipe and we got to keep tree roots away from it are also the same kind of places that say, we got this street and we got to keep the trees far away from it. We got to keep people far away from it. We got to do all these things to make maintenance of this stuff uh, very like quick, easy, and low cost. And I'm just going to categorize those places as generally unlovable places. Mm. Steve Zahn talks about this in his book, The Original Green. He says, places where they focus on low maintenance uh, are basically wind up to be no maintenance kind of places. They're places where nobody cares to maintain them because they don't have a lot of value. They don't have a lot of character. They, they're not loved in his terminology. And I've come to embrace that terminology. I think it's very good. So I think that engineers are right that, you know, street trees become a difficulty in terms of underground pipe. It's less of a difficulty with modern PVC pipe than it is with the old clay tile stuff that's been in there a hundred years that needs to come out anyway uh, and be replaced largely. Uh, but, you know, I, I think engineers are right that this is a problem. Um, you could also say a lot of, you know, parked cars on the street are a problem. Sidewalks are a problem. Uh, the leaves that fall from trees are a problem. Right. Uh, you know, humans are a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the if worst problem be, of all. Yeah, no, exactly. If we're yeah. going to maintain things and keep things, uh, we're going to, you know, have these struggles that make maintenance more difficult. To me, I put the emphasis somewhere else. I put the emphasis on the quality of the place we're building, the wealth that that creates, and the wealth that that creates creating enough value that we can afford to do the maintenance. Um, when we do it the other way around, say, how do we make the maintenance as cheap and easy as possible? You get places that are cheap and non-viable and non-functional over the long term, and then you don't have the money to do even the cheap maintenance. Well, so, and I just want to point out one more irony here, Chuck, which is that the kind of places that are prioritizing ease of maintenance of a street in terms of like snow clearance and things like that are often the places that are not doing the math on the repair and replacement costs of those streets, which is often far more substantial. Yeah. So just to complicate our conversation about maintenance a little bit more, the kind of what kind of maintenance should our cities be embracing and what kind of maintenance costs should we be a little bit more cautious of? because they're settling the next generations with levels of debt they won't be able to sustain. That's very true. And I'm actually bringing up my book right now because I have, yeah. I have a line in there I wrote about maintenance that, you know, when you write, like things come out. That you, <laughs> yes. that you, you know, they, they come out of your brain in a way that you're like, oh, I, that, I, that's quite delightful. I, yeah. you know, like, right. where did that come from? And I, I have a whole, in chapter eight, I talk about the barbell strategy and, and making like good investments. And the barbell strategy is from Nassim Taleb for Nassim folks who Taleb, aren't familiar. Yeah. yeah. You, have to, you have to read the book to get that part. The book is um, anti-fragile. But here, let me, uh, let me just, uh, there's a, there's a line in here that I really particularly like. Oh yeah. 
So let me just read this part. Instead of prioritizing maintenance based on condition or age, cities must prioritize based on financial productivity. Uh, they need to stabilize their centers of wealth by taking care of them. Any list of priorities must start with the most urgent needs of high productivity neighborhoods and proceed through all the current needs of those places before moving to other parts of town. And here's the part that I like. Mow the grass, sweep the streets, patch the sidewalks, pick up the trash, fill the potholes. These are the urgent needs that need to be prioritized. And I, I'm, I'm, I go on then later, I say, I'm, I'm, I'm describing maintenance that is more like the way the Walt Disney Corporation maintains their theme parks. <laughs> Ongoing basic maintenance with an obsession attention to detail. See a street light out, replace it. See a weed, pull it. See a crosswalk faded, repaint it. See a sidewalk broken, fix it. The neighborhoods that are generating such wealth for the community need to be showered with love. And, and I, I think that the street tree thing gets to that. Yeah. If, if, if our idea is we're going to put in a street tree and we're going to come back 40 years later and see what happened, it's like a loser scenario for anything that you do. If the idea is that we're going to put in a street tree and we're going to do these other things, and when that street tree grows and like dislocates the sidewalk a little bit, we're actually going to go on there and fix that. Um, you know, when the street tree changes and evolves and like the leaves fall, we're going to sweep them up so they don't wind up in the storm sewer. If we're going to dedicate ourselves to actually take care of stuff, that's an obsession that I think needs to be higher than, okay, you know, for, in 40 years, this street tree will impact this pipe under the ground. I don't care. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the kind of long-term maintenance obligation that facilitates a sense of care and community. I think that's a really good answer. Let's go to a question from Joel Zook, um, which as it happens, Chuck, you and I recorded a podcast yesterday where we kind of answered this question. So cool. consider this a preview. Um, how does a land value tax argument work in a predominantly rural area? How would it affect the taxing of agricultural land specifically? This is exactly what we talked about. Yeah, so no, I'm it's excited. Great, it was a really good conversation. Okay, good. Because we did do a, the whole UpZone podcast is a little bit about this one this week. So uh, I don't think that a land value tax would apply to, like, say, a rural area. I mean, I, th that's not the place where I would look to be applying it. Where you really, I think, have the biggest problem right now with our tax structure being at odds with our land use pattern you can think of it as areas where we have made large investments in public infrastructure, which is not a rural area. It's a, you know, uh, where we made large investments in public infrastructure and you don't have the productivity to handle that. Um, in those areas, there's basically this huge public ante in place and the private investment is like way, way less than what is needed to justify it. Those are places where in a sense we should be taxing commensurate with what the public ante is. And, and I think, you know, the feedback loop that you would get from that is that right now I worked on so many projects as an engineer where people would want us to put in the sewer and the water and everything else and then leave their land undeveloped uh, so that, you know, they would pay their assessment and, uh, but, but they would sit and wait till everything developed and their land went way up in value. And then they would sell it at this really high price in the meantime, the assessor would keep their land really low. Uh, even though we put in the sewer and water, there's a lot here in town I looked at that was valued at $4,000. And there was $40,000 of public infrastructure in it. I'm like, that's insane. That, what, what happens is that uh, the, 
the the demand or the call for this this public investment is essentially like risk free and tax free and low cost for the people demanding it and it induces a lot of crazy spending if people actually had to pay not only for the investment but for like the opportunity costs of having that in place uh we would get we would get less like crazy infrastructure built but more people like using it well once it was in place to get like to the question how does this apply to rural areas? I don't think it does. I really don't think it does. I, I, I don't think that the land value tax is an answer for anything that's happening in rural places. And for an ideal city, like I look at my town where we have urban, like clearly urban neighborhoods, we have suburban areas and we have more rural areas. If I could have my way, we would have a land tax in the urban areas we would have a land tax in the suburban areas. And as you flipped over into the rural areas, we would have some type of property tax or mm. something, something that would be different. Yeah. A lot of cities are not able to have that level of nuance, um, which is a good reason to make cities cities and rural areas rural, like govern in a different way. Yeah. That's a really good distinction. Well, and that brings me, we have a lighter list of questions this week. So I'm just gonna ask you some of mine that have been on my mind lately, Chuck. Um, another question I get a lot, um, and it's similar to the question about like, how do these land value tax per acre arguments apply in an agricultural context is how does it apply to parks? A public park isn't generating tax per acre, right? Um, how are, is Strongtown's anti-park? Are we saying that every inch of developable land like must not be squandered? Um, what do you do? What sort of uh, ratio of tax to service are we looking for in a park context? Uh, what sort of metrics are applying in these situations? That's a deep question. Yeah, I'm going to give you two examples to kind of answer that. The first one is this little pocket park we wrote about in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, this is a place where you had a vacant lot in a downtown that had been decimated by flood a building had been torn down because it was it was not occupiable and essentially the community was waiting for something to go in on this site instead of having a vacant property they put in a little pocket park they made an investment there and they put in some benches and some vegetation and it was a really great little gathering spot but then someone came in and said i'm ready to develop this like i, I like the, the downtown is really starting to hop and i would like to fill this in and a lot of the community rose up and said, no, no, we love this park. We love green space. That's a park that needs to go away. Like that's a park in a spot where like it's, it's greater value is as part of a coherent main street downtown. Hmm. And in a sense, like that was a transitionary use of that spot as a park. Let me give you a, a second example then. Uh, Central Park in New York. I don't think there's anyone uh, who you know would advocate for subdividing this and selling it off and thinking that that's going to create a ton of value, even though Manhattan is some of the most valuable real estate in North America. Yeah. Why is Manhattan such a valuable, such valuable real estate? A lot of it is because of Central Park. Central Park, because of its location, because of its design, because of how it's oriented and interacts with the land around it, has generated enormous amounts of wealth for right. the broader community. It, when, 
when we look at parks, when we say we want parks in our community, they're a public good, we want to have them. You're going to get no disagreement from me and you're going to get no disagreement from strong towns. The only nuance with a park is you've got to ask like, what is its function? If the function of it is to be an active gathering place, a place like Central Park, you design it in such a way that it actually reflects and builds value for the land around it. Yeah. That's how you make a park like magnify itself. So often what we do is we go and say, okay, well, here's the cheap land we can get out on the edge of town where we can put a park isolated from everything else. And we'll go out there and we'll put in a big parking lot and we'll expect people to drive to it. And the thing you get is you get then an amenity that is, um, you know, functional as an amenity itself. And it might build wealth the way like a gym membership builds wealth or having a movie theater builds wealth. You know, it's like an amenity for the community. But it doesn't build physical wealth in that when you're in proximity to it, your property becomes wealthier. And so I, I think when we want to get into the finances, what we're talking about is a design approach to parks that uses them to leverage the private sector wealth of the land around them. I have this like pithy saying, if you build a parking lot for your park, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're designing your park wrong. Yep. Um, you know, if you're building your park to make the land around it really valuable, uh, now you're doing it right. Let me give you kind of an extreme example of this. Yeah. Uh, I had a city once that got a bunch of land donated to them for softball fields. It was horrible land. It was, had a lot of topography. It was completely wooded. It didn't make any sense at all. Like it was really bad land. And plus it was like a mile and a half, two miles out of the core of town. They had ball fields in the middle of town that were in disrepair. They weren't taking very good care of them. They were kind of run down. The idea was, well, we'll get new, you know, field out here. And I put together a little plan for them. It was ultimately laughed at and rejected, but I, I'm, I'm giving this to you because I think this is like a really great idea. I put together a plan for them to subdivide and sell off lots that would have essentially been like the outfield of the existing ball fields. So you think of like the fence, the home run fence, 20 feet beyond the home run fence would have been a series of like condo units, like a little, they weren't, this was a small town, so they weren't huge, but like development, like lots uh, that we could use not only to sell, to sell this land, but use that revenue then to put into fixing up our properties, fixing up our lots. Um, in that case, the ballpark is a huge amenity for these condos. Imagine coming home from work and being able to sit on your back step and watch a softball game. Yeah. I know a lot of people who would love to do that. For us, it's like a foreign concept. We'd rather have a big parking lot there so the person mm -hmm. across town can come in. I think that if we think of development and parks that way, how do we create spaces where people interact with the park organically and naturally? Now the park becomes an amenity that creates real wealth that we can capture. I think that's great. And I appreciate you resisting my uh, trick question, which was to give you a metric because I know you and I know that it's going to be a messier, more sort of iterative set of questions, but ultimately are going to get us to a better place in our places. 
So if you're just joining us, I've seen a couple of new folks filter in, feel free to add those live questions to the Q&A. But let's go ahead and go to a question from Carolina Rodriguez, who says, in our town, we are dusting off a tool we had on paper, but have not used much in practice, our land bank. What does a strong town's approach to a land bank look like? How about we start with what is a land bank for people who aren't familiar? Uh, and I am getting a sigh out of you. So yeah, no, I, I don't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know what exactly she means in this context. Okay. Um, I, I've worked with uh, places that have land banks, and I'll tell you how those work. And this yeah. might not be the exact same as what she's describing, uh, because I've heard this term used in, in different ways and yes. ways that were confusing to me. Um, what I've seen as a, land, as a land bank is basically two scenarios. One this is land we want in conservation. Uh, we don't want it to be utilized in any way. So we're going to, and essentially have like a fund that would buy this land or buy up easements on this land. And we're going to bank that they call it like set it aside right. so that it's, it's in conservation and it's not developed. Um, the other kind of concept of a land bank has some of the same underpinnings and mechanisms but it's like, we want this land for dot, 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 name your purpose, affordable housing, uh, future, you know, right. park, wh whatever it is. And so we're going to use this financial mechanism to acquire it and then have that, you know, not be developed in a, in a short-term way, but have it be built in a long-term way. Uh, I find those schemes to be well-intentioned, but kind of like band-aids of a deeper problem, you know, dealing with a symptom of a deeper problem. Um, in most of these places where I've seen land banks put into place, what you have is you have a dysfunctional, destructive development pattern that nobody really likes. But for some reason, you all think you need to accept. Like we've got to tolerate this junky strode, frontage road, strip mall junk uh, we got to, you know, tolerate this dead end cul-de-sac with these really bad homes because that's, you know, what the market wants or that's what their developers are doing. So the way we're going to accept that here, but then we're going to try to get out in front of it with all this capital to try to lock up land so that that doesn't happen over here where we really care about things. I, I don't like that trade-off. I mean, I, I, I don't like that trade-off at all. Um, I don't like taking land just like randomly out of uh, productive use. Um, I also don't like the idea that, um, you know, we would just continue to tolerate really destructive development patterns. I feel like that's the underlying problem we have to fix. If you look at, if you remember that uh, Leon Creer drawing that we've shared, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it up here as I'm talking. There's a, there's a great drawing by Leon Creer where he, lays, he shows like a, a, a schematic of a traditional city. And then he has this question of expansion. Like, how do we expand this? And he's got two different options. And one is called expansion by replication. Hmm. And the other one is expansion by, uh, I think he calls it overexpansion or hyperexpansion. Hmm. And so what you get, and I've, I've got it right here, what you get to me is this underlying question of how you're going to grow. So 
let me uh, let me share my screen with everybody here so you can actually see this. Um, and for the podcast listeners, we'll describe oh, yeah, it vividly. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> it's okay. No podcast worries. listeners, yeah. <laughs> you are cool too. So here's Leon's career uh, picture of, of a mature city. Uh, what you have is a, a little town with a bunch of houses, a couple of buildings that look like they might be churches or steeples or, you know, synagogues or the thing, you know, public buildings of import, right? City right. hall, uh, the county government center, whatever, whatever it would be, majestic buildings. And they're all in a, a little town cluster, right? right? And so the idea is here is the vertical and horizontal overexpansion. Uh, you have uh, amongst these spires and other buildings, you now have skyscrapers and other condo units, you know, very intense structures. And then out on the edge, you have this long stretch of single family homes. Uh, his other vision is organic expansion through duplication, which is basically take this pattern that you like that's working and repeat that pattern again in another place. Uh, so you have a similar kind of organic makeup of a city. When I, I got two cute little towns on t either side of a bridge rather yeah. than one giant skyscraper town across from basically suburbs, I think is probably exactly. a fair way exactly. to, um, yeah. So I use this slide in New Hampshire because in New Hampshire, they were having all these, you know, affordable housing issues and problems with not liking the new development pattern. And I said, you know, just look around, like your cities are gorgeous. Why, why don't you just copy what you already built that you all like and that works so well? Um, that's basically what Leon Creer is suggesting here. So here's how this re relates to my understanding of the land banking strategy. To me, the land banking strategy is saying that top hyper expansion picture, the one with the condos and the skyscrapers and then the suburbs on the edge, that is something we have to do. Like we have no choice. Like that is what's being imposed on us and we must do that. And so amidst that, we're going to use a land bank to carve out places that we can protect from this like really bad development pattern uh, so that we can do things there that are better. I think you just got to reject that whole development pattern and mm -hmm. do the other one. You, you've got to do organic expansion through duplication. Um, and and I, to me, I don't want to say like the land bank is a waste of time and energy because I, I'm sure in some places like this is a strategy, this like maybe the only strategy you have. So I don't want to say like, don't do right. this. But I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really getting at the underlying problem. And it's, by its nature, it's a top-down tool. It's, it's consolidating true. the yeah. power of one entity to choose the use of a various uh, community interests. I mean, just to add one more complication, I have a feeling that maybe what she might mean is like a community land trust, which is a little bit different than a land bank in some ways. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, just in case that's that, what I, we mean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know as it's all that much different in terms okay. of the mechanism, you know. I mean, I know some community land trusts that will say, okay, we're going we're gonna to buy land and set aside for affordable housing. Right. And okay. And, and you can do a pattern of development that fits in uh, to the overall pattern. And sure. I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, I've seen land trusts where they say, here's a big piece of land out on the edge and we want to keep this in conservation. And the person is willing to donate it to us and we're going to give them a conservation easement. I don't have any problems with those mechanisms. Like that's fine. I just think your underlying development pattern should probably keep that land in preservation anyway. You know, like you shouldn't need the land trust to do that. And your underlying development pattern should naturally create affordable housing. You know, it should have feedback loops 
where, you know, it, it naturally allows incremental change over time uh, to accommodate housing at different price points. So I feel like these are all mechanisms to get around dealing with the underlying problem, which is this dysfunctional development pattern. That's a great answer. Thank you, Chuck. All right. Oh. Let's go to one that might make you mad. It's from uh -oh. Jamie Boring. Well, in a subtle way. Um, Jamie asks, what is the definition of a vibrant downtown and why is it important to have one? The reason this might make you mad is because I have heard that you're not a big fan of the word vibrant, Chuck. Yeah. Let's talk about why. Well, why, why don't, you know, you are, <laughs> you are the, you, you're the very like eloquent uh, person. Why don't you tell tell me what your definition is? Because I'm I'll I'll just say up front, this is not a trick question because I don't have yeah. a better one. Like I'm not trying <laughs> to I'm not trying to put you on the spot and stump you here because I'm I'm not uh, I'm not going to have anything great on this one. Well, vibrant for me is a challenging word because it kind of has become meaningless. It's been co-opted by um, not just the planning profession, but all kinds of placemakers to mean what they want it to mean. Um, for me, as an English major, as a holder of a graduate degree in the humanities and the English language, um, vibrancy should mean uh, many diverse interests interacting and ricocheting off of each other in a sort of effervescent system in a way that is dynamic, is interesting, is ever-changing. That's what vibrancy should be. What vibrancy tends to mean when I see it used out in the world is like, this condo complex has a vibrant sense of community because we have a rec room, you know? It's um, being used as a shorthand for whatever you think is the good life. And I'm not a big fan of that. What I'm interested in is not what I think of as what's vibrant, but what is actually going to happen as the result of many, many factors coming together and organically uh, putting out energy and creating a place. So um, a vibrant downtown, I think, is crucial if you mean it like the way I mean it, and <laughs> not to be narcissistic. Right. But, <laughs> um, but downtowns, I think, by their nature, the, they should be a diverse range of interests in a contained space, doing their thing, growing and evolving and changing. And we've limited that in a way and made things static and inert, which is the opposite of vibrancy in my mind. What I'm gonna ask you a follow-up yeah, question. Please. Uh, Cause I agree with everything you just said, by the way, I, that, 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 was, a, that was an answer that I'm 100% on board with. Yeah. Would you consider a, and let's, let's take like a virgin rainforest or mm. uh, a, you know, a kind of pristine, natural environment, you know, very untouched by humans. Would you consider an environment like that to be vibrant? A rainforest, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah. In what dimension, though? In what dimension? <laughs> um, insofar as you have eco-diversity, everything that I just described in the built environment and in the human scale, um, like that applies absolutely in a biological space. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Here's, here's what I want to point out then. And this is where I think I, I run into trouble with the whole like vibrancy vibe and conversation yeah. because it, it seems to be a very like a main street kind of mindset. Um, the rah-rah crowd, you know, like, oh, we want vibrancy. Um, part of the vibrancy that I think you and I agree on is found in natural systems. Right. It's a byproduct of cold, hard destruction. You that know? too. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It, 
it's part of part of part of what makes a rainforest a vibrant place part of what makes like a natural ecosystem a vibrant place is that losers are destroyed quickly and mercilessly you know, um, I wrote a horror movie or horror novel set in the rainforest. So yeah. It's better than most people. <laughs> so like, you know. all how many bugs die on a given night and it's in the billions in the it's, rainforest. It's bizarre. It's, it's it, is, it is carnage all yeah, over. Constantly. And so I, I think like we, we think of, I think your description of like the rec room is really good because a lot of times when we're talking about vibrancy, um, we're talking about these like, antiseptic places that right. you know everything's laid out nicely and the band is playing over here and you've got like the <laughs> you know the street minstrels and yeah. you know all the like clean happy people are there and doing a flash mob starts up in the middle of the park yeah yeah everything's so alive <laughs> yeah right. and and to me when i like get into like what is vibrancy um it is this ecosystem um that is, is, you know, the anti-fragile kind of, my, kind of ecosystem right. where you've got a certain amount of adaptation, a certain amount of early destruction of bad ideas uh, with, you know, an incremental shift to good ideas and, and good thoughts and good, you know, adaptable strategies. Um, it's not necessarily a place that looks always like you know, pristine or what you'd put on like the front of your marketing, Main Street marketing brochure. Uh, but it has a certain like resilience and adaptability to it. To me, that's what vibrant is. And I, I don't think that's what the, the happy marketing people want to think of it. Right. And, but that's what I would think of it as. <sighs> I mean, I will say though, that when you say that, I don't want it to make it sound like we want to come in and kill every mom and pop store on Main Street. It's survival of the fittest, Darwin. <laughs> what we mean is that um, probably more likely lots and lots of small business has more of a fighting chance um, because we have a system that is allowed to grow and change to suit the needs of many, many players rather than being engineered to suit the needs of a few players. Well, let, let me let, let me get into that. Let me give me give yeah. a concrete example of that Please because do. you can go to, um, uh, okay. Let me let me throw my favorite uh, kind of comfort happy place under the bus. Oh no! <laughs> you and I can go to downtown Disney, which uh -huh. we have. Yep. We've had many meals there uh, together uh, on staff retreats and and yep. otherwise. So we can go to downtown Disney, and you can see, you know, the Gap and the Disney store and Jamba Juice and, you know, all the like chain restaurants and chain shopping places are, they're all there. They're all like lined up and you've got street musicians and you've got people walking around and you can say, oh my gosh, this is a vibrant, vibrant place. This is a vibrant place. Um, and I think in one like narrow definition, it's some of the most vibrant acreage in North America. There's no doubt about it. Um, what you won't see are, is this like ecosystem of businesses. It's right. all very like artificial. It's all very um, dependent on the, 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 the whole Disney complex around it. Yep. If that goes away, like this main, this, you know, this vibrant place just dies. It's a, it's an artificial construct. If, if we go to your main street, I'm not saying like, let's go in and wipe out every Ma and Pa coffee shop. I'm saying if the one coffee shop owner is incompetent and like doesn't know how to make good coffee, yeah. they do go away. And you know what? Like a better coffee shop comes in and takes its place. Right. Um, 
not where like if Starbucks decides that the ratio of people on the sidewalk to people parking spaces doesn't meet their, you know, their, their metrics at corporate office, they pull your Starbucks. Yep. I'm talking about like an ecosystem where, yeah, it, you know what? You're going to have an incompetent uh, coffee shop owner. Like those happen. Half of businesses fail. We should not be afraid of that. But the idea is that if the system is vibrant, if the place is vibrant, if things are happening, if it's a, it's a, it's a viable ecosystem, when that weak competitor goes away, someone else comes in and takes the place because there's actually a market there for coffee. And th that's when I am describing destruction and evolution and change, that's what I'm talking about is systems that work like that. I think that's great. And no disrespect to Disney. We would love it if you would be an official Strongtown sponsor because we <laughs> go there a lot. <laughs> um, and I have gotten more than my share of urban planning lectures about how amazing Disney is in so many well, ways. I'll tease this. Yeah. Um, when I did, when I put the book proposal together and signed the contract, I, um, part of what I did is I said, you know, I'm planning these follow-up books and the Wiley and Sons has like a right of first refusal on mm -hmm. the, the next one. Um, the, the last one in this series, and I think there's five, um, the last one in the series is urban design as seen through a Disney theme park. And my plan was to say like, here's an urban design challenge, like in my community and other communities, here's like a thing that we've struggled with. And here's how they fix this at, a, at, at, you know, one of the Disney resorts or theme parks or what have you. Because the one thing that Disney is, it, yes, it's an artificial environment. I'm not going to argue that it's not. But they are obsessive about design details, just yeah. obsessive. And it's one of those things where I've brought a lot of people to Disney parks who struggled with design issues because you're looking at like a personification of it. You know, when you, when you look at a caricature of, you know, I, I, I didn't notice that Barack Obama had big ears until I saw a caricature of him with big ears. It's one of those things where caricatures like take certain details that people aren't uh, nuanced to, like me, I, I, and it, it enhances them so you start to notice them. What Disney theme parks do and Disney resorts do from a design standpoint is they take some of the details that I think no, novice designers don't see and it puts them in like hyper relief, like a caricature. So I can point to them and like say, like, look at, here's what they did here. And it becomes very obvious where like walking around in my town, it's more subtle, it's harder to grasp, it's less perfect. And so it's really hard to get the principle. So yeah, Disney should be a sponsor of Strong Towns. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> okay, commercial <laughs> over. Um, let's go ahead and say last call hit us with those live questions otherwise we are going to a question from steven jacques who i consider the mvp of the ask strong towns podcast he always has interesting Sweet. questions um steven asks does the higher density of the traditional development pattern require more urban infrastructure for instance water and sewer lines complete streets networks etc in order to function and here's the meat of the question if so how does a rural town slash area incrementally grow in the traditional development pattern without building pricey infrastructure first so i think ah, steven is asking yes. sort of like the chicken or the egg question yes. um about how can a rural town specifically not agricultural lands we've had that conversation you and i chuck um get bigger in the traditional way without laying down a bunch of pipes and saying if we build it 
they will come. It's a great, I love it. It's a great yeah. question. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just, let me, let me casually disregard the question. Okay. <laughs> um, there, the number of places that this question would apply to is infinitesimally small in North America. Right. In other words, um, the problem that most small towns uh, have in North America is that we have way too much infrastructure already. Right. In other words, we've already gone in and built it, and now we have way too much, and we don't know what to do with it. Um, so in the handful of places where it's the opposite, where we don't have this, but we're trying to grow our small town, um, and you know that growth is like going to happen and be viable, which you're talking about like a tiny, tiny amount of places. Right. I've, but I've thought about this a lot. Um, if you look at the, the pictures of the incremental development pattern from my hometown that I use in the curbside chat, I do another uh, presentation that's related on infrastructure investment. And I point out in those three photos, if you look at the public infrastructure, what you see is that the infrastructure is scaled to the development pattern. Yep. So in the first iteration, uh, you've got this little line of pop-up shacks. And what does the public street look like? And, you know, a barely graded bunch of dirt. Like there's no public infrastructure there at all. And what you can picture is that, you know, people have maybe like a well <laughs> that they're using with a hand pump or something. I don't know, like a little well, like individual well. And out back, they got an outhouse. I'm not arguing that we should go back to hand pump wells and outhouses, but I think like understanding that the public investment was kind of scaled to the private investment is a poor, is important starting point. The next iteration, then you've got these pop-up shacks are gone and you've got these two and three story wood structures. And if you look at that, what you can see is that there's now wooden sidewalks. The street is like well graded and well maintained. You can envision, and, and I've seen cities that have done this, um, like little uh, communal water system where instead of having like a big pipe and a water tower and a treatment facility, you've got like a, a little network there where there's a pump and there's a little copper pipe that goes to your place and you're not getting enough water to fight a fire, but you're plenty, getting plenty of water to fill your coffee pot and, you know, do the things that you need to do on a, on a just regular basis. There might be a series of like pressure tanks or, other things to do some water storage in individual places. Um, so there's, there's like microsystems that you can build that would, would handle some of this stuff. Um, the same with the sewage treatment. Uh, you can have, you know, a communal system that handles five different homes, uh, has some, you know, high maintenance costs maybe at times, uh, but you can, you can make that like incremental leap. If you look at the next photo then in that series, those two, those two and three story wood structures are now the buildings that I describe as brick and granite. They're the more permanent structures. And if you look at the street, what you see is that the sidewalks now are no longer wood, they're concrete. The street is no longer graded uh, aggregate, it's paved. There's a catch basin in the middle. So there's a stormwater system to get rid of the stormwater. Uh, there's a fire hydrant there. So there's a full firefighting capacity scaled water system in place. Essentially, the, in, the infrastructure has grown incrementally along with and kind of in conjunction with the development. The development, in a sense, leads a little bit and the public investment follows. Mm-hmm. Here's the rub. And, and I think this is the rub that we got to get past, get beyond. Right. Um, any engineer is going to tell you that is like an inefficient waste of resources. Yeah. Um, 
if we have to build a system and then 20 years later go in, dig up and get rid of that system and build a new system, and then 20 years after that, <clears throat> dig up and build a brand new system, yep. what, a, what a waste of resources. Why not just build the finished system right off the bat? Because that would be like way better. Uh, it'd be way more efficient per foot. We can amortize it out over a long period of time. We'll have low, lower costs. What's the answer to that? <clears throat> the answer to that is that you're basically by doing it iteratively, you're spending money on stability. You're basically buying insurance that your plans don't work out. Uh, if you put in that big, huge pipe and you say, here's how we're going to grow and we're going to grow incrementally, we're going to do it the strong towns way over the next 40 years or 50 years, but we're going to put in all the final infrastructure right away. And then it doesn't work. It's the, it's a bad vision. The market changes. The people there don't want it. The people yeah. 10 years from now do something different. Uh, there's some adaptation in the marketplace. We get automated vehicles and your, your vision's stupid now. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm saying, like things change. Right. Flying st- cars. We don't need roads anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. don't need this stuff. Jetsons now. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're stuck with uh, this antiquated investment. And so what we see in traditional development patterns is that there's always an emphasis on stability over growth. Uh, when we can focus on doing things iteratively, even though the costs are much higher incrementally as you go, even though it's not efficient in the way that we've come to value efficiency, the trade-off is you have high degrees of stability and you allow yourself the chance that you're going to make mistakes and can adapt and, and evolve. If you build everything all at once to a finished state from a public infrastructure standpoint, you're being the sage, the Nostradamus that sees out 30, 40, 50 years and pretends they can view the future. And the reality is we can't do that. Uh, we do that really poorly. And those places tend to become very fragile. There's a couple of related things that I want to just point out. Um, one, if you are an engineer uh, and you get paid to do infrastructure, there's not a lot of incentive for you to ponder systems that are iterative. It's a much easier sell for you and you can make this very clean efficiency argument uh, that you do things all at once to a finished state. Um, that doesn't make engineers bad or corrupt. It just makes them myopically focused on one variable, that being efficiency, as opposed to the overall long-term stability. Uh, the other thing is, if you're a politician, you've got the same thing. If I can solve this problem for all time, uh, maybe they'll put a statue of me in the middle of town, you know, like, I, like seriously, I will get the ribbon cutting and I will get the big thing. If I deal with this iteratively, I know what's going to happen. 15 years from now, they're going to be saying that cheapskate Marone, who was the mayor back when we did this, didn't make the investment. Now we got to go in and dig it up and redo it. What a waste of time. What a waste of energy. Why didn't we just do this right the first time? We didn't do it right the first time because we did it right the first time for where we were. Right. And now we've grown and evolved into a different place and now we need to change it. Um, it's not efficient. Get over that. Get over that. 
<laughs> we need a t-shirt that says on the front, you're not Nostradamus and on the back it says, get over it. <laughs> so that'll be good. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note for us to end on today, Chuck. Thank you so much for taking your time to answer these questions. Thank all of you all for asking your questions. If we didn't get to a question, um, please do ask it on uh, strongtowns.org slash askstrongtowns. There are dashes in between all of those words. Sorry about that, but you'll figure it out. Um, I know strong strong dash dash towns. towns. I know we got to fix it, but that's, that's an easy thing to do. Let's put Um, out a little plug too for uh, the knowledge base and all the work that's been going on in that. I think, you know, Jacob Moses is our community builder and he's taken on this project and I think done a, a, a great job with him and Daniel both in trying to field some of these questions and answer them, you know, systematically so that we build up this knowledge base so that the people who come after, after you and me and the people on this call who have questions can, can find a repository there where they can get them answered. So if you have a question and you don't want to wait for one of these or do the, the ask question roulette, uh, go to, uh, go to the knowledge base that, that, that URL is easy. That is help. (laughs) .strongtowns.org. It sure is. Uh-huh. Well, and the added benefit of the knowledge base too is both Chuck and I are on there, but also all of the great minds in the Strong Towns movement are on there True. too. So you're going to get, you know, talk about vibrancy, a more vibrant range <laughs> of voices and um, perspectives on your issue. Um, this is really the space for if you need to ask Chuck a question, which I think a lot of people think that they do until they realize that Chuck, you don't know nothing. <laughs> Just That's <kidding>. true. <laughs> no, but, I, 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 the, it's funny because you remind me of another line in, in the book I wrote, just like, you know, in the phase we're in, in the stage of building, if, if we're in 1950s America and you're going to build highways all over the place and do the engineers are the experts. If you're in the year 2019 and you're trying to make your city productive and viable, humans are experts. Like yeah. people are experts. That, that's what it, I mean, that's the point we're at is that the iterative, you know, humanity in all of our places becomes the area of expertise. Totally so agree. I'll follow up with the knowledge base. You know, you, you reminded me that, you know, there are all these people who are also adding thoughts and answers and comments on uh, the questions that are submitted. If you're listening to this and you're, you're uh, one of those people, um, and let's just put like a name on it. If you are like a strong towns, know it all. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Uh, go to the knowledge base and be the expert. I'm, uh, that, that would be all, that would be awesome. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Ask your own question and answer it. That would be wicked. <laughs> I love that idea. All right. Well, thanks everybody. We are signing off and we will see you next time for another Ask Strong Towns and keep doing what you can to make your town a little stronger. Bye. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through.
I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.